From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. The thread running through all my work is a fundamental belief that humans, wherever we are in the world, have more to unite us than divide us. And celebrating this commonality is my passion, inspired by the old Jewish adage that an enemy is just a person whose story you haven't heard yet. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. Now, you just heard from today's guest, Yasmin Khan. Yasmin is the author of two cookbooks, The Saffron Tales, Recipes from the Persian Kitchen, and Zaytun, Recipes and Stories from the Palestinian Kitchen. But before penning her first cookbook, Yasmin earned a law degree and then a master's in social policy from the London School of Economics. And then she spent a decade working as an activist and human rights campaigner, working for grassroots groups and NGOs before suffering burnout, taking a step back, and turning to food writing as a new tool. Just as Yasmin says she traveled the world to collect stories from people and translate them into campaigns for justice, today she travels the globe to translate people's stories into recipes for celebration. Her first cookbook, Saffron Tales, takes her back to her home country of Iran, and her latest cookbook, Zaytun, is a celebration of the Palestinian kitchen. For this book, Yasmin chronicled recipes by cooking with Palestinians in their homes and traveling through Israel and the West Bank. Today, more than 4.5 million people live in what the United Nations calls occupied Palestinian territories, and Palestinians represent one of the largest populations of displaced refugees in the world. In this week's show, we're talking with Yasmin about her cookbooks, including Zaytun and the process of creating a cookbook celebrating Palestinian cuisine. Plus, we're playing a pomegranate-themed game with Yasmin, chatting with Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and featuring a recipe for moussakin, roast chicken with sumac and onions. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Yasmin Khan joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Yasmin. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Of course. So we're here to talk about your second cookbook, Zaytun, um, which followed your first book, The Saffron Tales. And I want to start first with the title of your book before we sort of talk more about what led you to where you are today and the book itself. But Zaytun is the Arabic word for olive. It is. Um, and I chose that title for the book because in my exploration of Palestinian cuisine, which is what this book is, um, the olive and olive oil felt like the most emblematic ingredient of all of Palestinian cuisine. And why is that? There's You write in the book that there's a particular significance and some symbolism of the olive and the olive tree, particularly for Palestinians. Absolutely. I mean, you know, universally, like... Uh, the olive branch is known as a, as a symbol of peace. In Palestinian culture, kind of their poetry and, and, and literature is littered with references to the olive tree. And, um, olive trees really represent for Palestinians their connection to the earth and the land, like the roots of the olive tree represent that, that steadfastness that Palestinians have. Um, and then also when the olive tree is uprooted, it represents their displacement from the land. Um, and almost every Palestinian, um, community has an olive grove that they visit every year and the olive harvest is a big part of Palestinian, you know, celebration. 
celebrations in the autumn. And every time you sit down for a meal, whether it's breakfast, lunch or dinner, there will um, almost always be a small bowl of, of olives at the table. Sure. That connectedness to earth and to family and to food, but also sort of the olive and the olive branch being in many ways a universal symbol of peace. So I think that's just a wonderful choice. How did you land on that? Was Did that come to you easily as the title? Do you know what? It came to me so easily. Really? It's, okay. it's, um, I, I've had this, I also had it with the saffron tails. I actually really? started with the titles almost. It's funny. Wow. That's pretty my, rare. <laughs> for my next book, um, you know, which, uh, you know, we won't talk about today, but I've already started working on it and I have no idea what the title is. So okay. it happens both ways sometimes, but, um, no, it came pretty quickly and, um, my editor just fell in love with it straight away as well. I mean, you know, a, a foreign language word can be a bit unusual, um, in a cookbook, but, there's something about its punchiness, Zaytun. Yeah. It, everyone remembers it. Yeah, it is beautiful and sort of poetic and mm. um, rolls off the tongue so nicely. Let's talk a little bit about, so there's 80 plus recipes in this book in Zaytun of, uh, for Palestinian cooking. Let's talk a little bit about Palestinian cuisine and what it is and maybe some of the, if you can explain for folks, some of the regional differences in Palestinian foods. Sure. Well, Palestinian cuisine can genuinely be split into three main types. Okay. There's the food of Palestinian communities living in the Galilee area right. in the north of Israel, uh, which has the most affinity with the classic Levantine cuisine that people might be familiar with. You know, like vibrant fatouche salads, zingy tabbouleh, mm, um, yeah. lots of vegetable-based dishes such as braised okra, stuffed eggplant. It's a very vegetable-rich cuisine and quite light, um, you know, with also kind of quite a few fish influences by the coast, maybe some lovely fish dishes drenched in tahini. So that encapsulates perhaps uh, the food from that region. Then you get Palestinian food from the West Bank, okay. uh, which is more influenced by Bedouin cuisine and the food of Jordan. And that tends to be more meat-based, more bread-based, um, perhaps more stews where you're, or, or grilled meat dishes where you're marinating meats in spices like cumin and allspice, rich hearty stews such as mansaf, which is lamb cooked in a type of kind of fermented way. So th the food there is a little bit heavier. And then you get the food from Gaza, which for me sure. was a total revelation uh, for the research of the book, because it's so unique to any other Middle Eastern cuisine, because the emphasis is heavily on seafood. So traditionally shrimp and sardines and, and squid. But the flavor combinations are things like I always say the holy trinity almost of, of Gazan cuisine is, is dill, green chilies and garlic that, yeah. that are used together pounded together for, you know, marinades for fish that are put into stews that are put into salads. It's, it's a very punchy, fiery cuisine. Yeah. So interesting. That was one of the most fascinating aspects when I was reading through your book as well. For me is that, um, that's, that sort of style of cooking is so different than much of the Middle Eastern cooking that we might be used to from various cuisines. Absolutely. So you know, fascinating. Uh, the history of it is one that I've still, you know, yet to uncover exactly why it was. I mean, you know, you've got the influence of Egypt perhaps to the south, but. Uh -huh. But still, the dill seed, why? And the right. dill, where, why did that become so important in Garzan cooking? I, yeah. I have no idea, but I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Yes. So let's go back a little bit then. I want to talk more about Zaytun and the process of making this mm -hmm. book. But let's go back first to what led you to becoming a cookbook author. Um, so you studied law for a while. You were working as a human rights activist for a while. And then you shifted and started um, to work on your first cookbook. Can you tell us what sort of led you there and what that shift was like? Sure. Well, um, 
you know, I'm of Middle Eastern background myself. Mm-hmm. My mom's from Iran. My dad's from Pakistan, even though I was born and brought up in the UK. Um, and, and I guess my, my background took me on this journey through kind of human rights and the law and legal, legal nonprofits. And um, because I was really interested in, in sharing stories from the region. But, you know, like something that probably a lot of people can relate to in all kinds of fields, I ended up pushing myself too hard definitely burning the candle at both ends. Mm. And I had a, a burnout at the age of 30, quite okay. a debilitating one. It meant I had to kind of leave my job, um, take six months out and and just try and recoup my energy. Uh, you know, I was working on human rights in the Middle East and I always joke that there are no human rights in the Middle East. So I was very busy. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I, I just, you know, the balance, I got out of balance and my boss was great and um, gave me a few months off to, to just recover. And as part of that journey, I spent some time in Iran with my maternal grandmother. And it was there that I started doing what I've started, you know, continued to do in, in Zaytun, which was cook with people in their homes, collect stories. And um, yeah, I suddenly realized that perhaps I could, I could take my love of food and my love of storytelling and put them together and produce cookbooks that would offer a window into these places that we most commonly see in the West through a very narrow, narrow political prism and uh, use it as a way of celebrating people's culture and food. Was food a big part of your life before that? Or was that sort of the moment when you were traveling with your, your grandmother in Iran that it, it clicked for you? Yeah, no, it was always a big part of it. Okay. I mean, my mom has a PhD in nutrition and dietetics. Okay. Um, I always joke we were on growing up on brown rice salads in the 80s type thing. But <laughs> yeah. my my family in Iran are farmers. So as okay. a kid, I had the real like luxury of having this small, you know, farm holding to run around and play with with my cousins. You know, we grew sure. rice and we had cows and my grandmother made her own milk and her own butter. And we grew all our own vegetables like squash and tomatoes and cucumbers. And, you know, we had pomegranate trees and fig trees and, you know, quince trees and apple trees. I mean, I was just surrounded by fresh produce every time I was with my family. And as anyone, I think, who's been around that kind of farming community um, feels, you just get so connected to food and its provenance and how it's used and its seasonality. And even throughout all my nonprofit work, the kitchen was always where I'd find solace. You alluded to this a little bit, but you noted that you sort of brought some of your skills and expertise as a human rights campaigner, as an activist, and merged it with your love of food and storytelling. How did that background in campaigning and activism influence the food writing and the the cookbook writing that you're doing today? Well, I think that my books are quite unique in the, they might have a cracking bunch of recipes in them, uh, <laughs> but they also take readers on a journey. So interspersed throughout um, the, the recipes are stories from my travels, you know, when I was in Jerusalem or Bethlehem or Haifa. Um, I share stories of Palestinians I cooked with, of, of famous like patisseries I visited, of restaurants and cafes and everyday Palestinian life um, through the prism of food. And I think that that real, I think, passion that I have for creating a platform where people who have a voice, who don't have a voice can be heard has kind of continued through my human rights work and into my cookbooks. Yeah. You made a conscious decision, and you note this at the beginning of the book, to not include Israeli voices in the book and to really just sort of focus um, solely on voices of Palestinians and their day-to-day life. Was that an easy decision for you? Did, did that come pretty clearly to at the start of this project? 
Well, yeah, I mean, the book is really clearly a book that celebrates the Palestinian kitchen. Um, but in the context of that, of course, I'm talking about the wider situation that exists in Israel and Palestine. Right. And, um, I mean, you know, as I, as I kind of write in the book as well, I mean, I, for the research of this book, I, you know, stayed with the, in the houses of Israeli friends in Tel Aviv. Certainly in my nonprofit days, I, you know, work with Israeli peace groups and I've definitely enjoyed the food of uh, Israeli chefs in, in London and in, in New York. And, but, um, for the purpose of this book, I, I really wanted, uh, to create a space for Palestinian voices to be heard because I think, unfortunately, um, you know, Palestinians are not often given the space in mainstream media to, you know, be represented. They're often just seen through a very narrow prism of, of the conflict. Yeah. So you, you take us on this journey uh, through your travels and the book opens actually with um, you arriving and being detained at the airport, um, which I think immediately just sort of paints this picture for readers of your cookbook of Zaytun that it's not sort of going to be a rosy, happy-go-lucky cookbook with a few nice recipes, but is really going to tell an honest and truthful story about your experiences and the people that you met. Talk about the decision to frame the book in that way and to include um, that story at the beginning of the book and whether you grappled at all with that and sort of having to tell a, a difficult and challenging story through your work. Yeah, I mean, I really felt that it was my responsibility as an outsider, um, having seen and heard all the things that I had done when traveling through the region to really give an honest portrayal of what life is like there. And I think, um, yeah, it's, it's not usual for a cookbook to start with a detention. Um, but, um, you know, I think in recent years, Tel Aviv has really seen so much press attention as being this incredible, you know, foodie city, which it definitely is. And there are great restaurants and an incredible food scene there, but your ability to access them is really dependent on your ethnicity. And so I just wanted to say, as me, as someone of Muslim background, kind of going into, you know, Tel Aviv, um, being subjected to a really intimidating and harsh detention when I was just in the process of researching a cookbook right. was just a little small example of, of actually how fraught life is there. And, um, I hope that my work in some way can, encapsulate all the realities of, of, of life there so the the, the challenges um and the, and the and 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 the fraughtness but then also the beauty and the joy because life is really about the sum of that human experience and i think the best kind of travel writing shows you both things were there other challenges that you faced i know for instance you couldn't travel to gaza physically um for this trip and so you instead sought out folks who could introduce you to gazan cuisine from their homes in the uk or elsewhere what sort of challenges, aside from being, you know, detained at the airport as you're arriving and not being able to travel certain places, did you face in putting this book together? There were so many challenges. <laughs> yes. and, and we're going to get next to yeah. the, the other side of yeah, it, too. So. But there were. It's um, no one can travel through that region without being massively affected um, by what you see. I think especially kind of seeing the physical apparatus of the checkpoints, seeing the wall that, you know, surrounds refugee camps in Bethlehem, this biblical town that I know from growing up, you know, of being the right. birthplace of Jesus and this joyous place. Now you see, um, 
you see kind of how life is there. Um, and then just, you know, hearing stories of how everyday Palestinian, you know, ag- agrarian life is affected by the occupation, how like water resources are taken away from kind of farmers uh, in the West Bank about how settler communities come and up, you know, pull out olive trees. It's, it's deeply disturbing. And I think the saddest part of it was Gaza. Um, it was so unfortunate that I couldn't visit Gaza. It's a place that's been blockaded for 11 years with nothing being out, allowed in or out. And, you know, two million people live there and they yeah. live in such a small bit of land. I think this is something that people don't really get about that area. Like it's tiny. So Gaza's two million people living in an area that's 25 miles long and six miles wide. You know, that the United Nations has called it the world's largest open air prison. And, and for me, it was such an important part of the Palestinian story that I really wanted to include it. So yeah, I cooked with Gazans in the diaspora or, um, via Skype. And I think one of my favorite interviews was with, um, Omar, a blogger from, <laughs> Uh, Gaza City. Right. And we really bonded over, you know, he loves Pakistani food. So we were sharing kind of stories on that. But then, you know, he was telling me how to cook this particular recipe um, that involved getting carrots from his garden. And I just thought, oh, well, isn't that a beautiful story? And then all of a sudden he was like, yeah, but you know, when we take carrots from our garden, we don't know if they're going to be safe. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the Israeli army used white phosphorus on us, which is a type of chemical weapon in 2009. And there's been a huge spike in cancer rates. So when we pick a carrot from the garden, we don't know if that carrot is going to be safe or if it's going to give us cancer. And I was just like, God, you know, just the everyday act of eating is laden with so much, um, yeah, so much hardship. Yeah. Yeah. There was this other, um, quote that really stood out to me from a person you talked with, I, I think named Essa, um, who says, you know, to you that he wants you to share their culture, he says, but you can't talk about the food without talking about the occupation. Uh, he says you can't escape it. You know, it's not about being political. It, it affects everything from, as you noted, your daily life to the way you eat. Did you have other challenges in working with people? I think there's also a quote that stood out to me um, in the book, and I think sort of you noted stood out for you too, from a woman who said, you know, we're not clowns in a circus for you to come and watch us and then make your name from writing down our suffering. You note that that quote really stuck with you. What impact did hearing that have on you? Yeah, it was, it was very important for me to include both of those stories because, you know, other writers could have just pretended that this was just super easy. And, and I have to say that the overwhelming majority of Palestinians I met were very excited to be able to work with me to share their stories, to kind of enable a different perspective of their country to be seen. But I think that quote from that woman I put in, because I think as outsiders, when we go in, to look at other cultures, we have to really acknowledge our own responsibility and also our role in what we're doing. And I kind of put that story in because, yeah, it really affected me and I really questioned what I was doing and I really had to go back and go, oof, what, what is this about? Why are you doing it? But then I had to kind of, I think, go past that and think that actually what I'm doing with the platform that I have in the West is actually something that's overwhelmingly positive. But I think it's always important as a writer to, yeah, check yourself. Yeah. And so I'm, I wonder if, she, you know, I wonder if she'll ever know that I included that story because yeah. it was just a random person in the cafe. And uh, I'm really grateful for her to raising that point. 
We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Yasmin Khan. But first, a special promotion for Salt and Spine listeners. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know we record all of our episodes at the Civic Kitchen, the cooking school for home cooks in San Francisco's Mission District. And now, through the end of April, Salt and Spine listeners can get 25% off your first or next class at the Civic Kitchen using the promo code SALT25. Don't miss upcoming classes and events featuring cookbook authors as well. All you have to do is head to civickitchensf.com, find the cooking class that's perfect for you, and save 25%. Use the code SALT25, that's S-A-L-T-2-5, when checking out, and happy cooking. And now, back to our conversation with Yasmin Khan, author of Zaytun, Recipes and Stories from the Palestinian Kitchen. You have noted, which surprised me, that you felt like this book was a more personal book for you than Saffron Tales. And I want to talk a little bit about Saffron Tales, too, which was your first book. Tell us how sort of they're different and how they felt personal, maybe in different ways to you. Mm. Um, well, the Saffron Tales tells this tells the story of my journey through Iran. So I traveled from like the, the mountains of Tabriz through to the rice paddies of Gilan, through the you know, cosmopolitan city of Tehran, down through the ancient Islamic art hubs of Isfahan and down to the Persian Gulf. And the book is a collection of stories and recipes that tell that journey. Um, you know, Saffron felt like a very uplifting book for me. Uh, it was so wonderful to go in and celebrate the aspects of, you know, Iranian culture, which I don't think get talked about. Um, you know, my, my, mission was very so clear with saffron it was just to to show people a human side of iran to share people's stories of of all the the beauty and the joy and the exquisite architecture and art uh, that exists in iran and it surprises me also that zaytun ended up feeling more personal um because obviously my my heritage is from iran but sure. i think my, I don't know whether it was my, my, my publishers in the way that they, they encouraged me to just be a lot more honest in Zaytun about the challenges, like just some of the ones we've talked about. Um, but I really felt like I, I, I was just writing what I saw unedited in a very honest and pure way. And as a writer, like there can actually be nothing that feels better than that. Yeah. And Saffron Tales was your first book and it was really widely received. Um, all sorts of praise. Were you surprised at how positively it was received? Yeah, I'm still surprised by all of it, to be honest. Um, you know, I, again, my publisher always, my editor always says to me, she's like, you always underplay the fact that like your recipes are the things that make these books successful. And I think that probably is the thing that surprised me the most when you go on Instagram and you see pictures of people cooking your food in like Brisbane or Berlin or right. Brooklyn. And, and actually it's the recipes working and the fact that I'm a home cook and that I translate recipes into you know, something you can whip together at home after work one night. I think it's seeing that the joy that people get from the recipes is the thing that has blown me away the most. Yeah. Um, because, you know, as, as a home cook, that feels something I'm very proud of. I mean, I work hard at my recipes and I, I test them and I work on them and I, I work at the craft, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's quite incredible. And I haven't had a chance to cook yet from Zaytun, but I'm curious where you would guide me. Like mm. where, what recipes do I start with? Or if you're listening, where should you sort of jump into Zaytun? Well, I always start perhaps with the soups because I think there are some incredible soups in the book. And probably one of my favorite ones is this roast cauliflower soup where you use the roast cauliflower leaves as well as the actual florets. 
and it's really kind of creamy and warming and comforting. Um, so I love that. Um, and then the other dish that I always recommend is the masakan, which are marinated pieces of chicken, um, that you marinate in like cumin and allspice and a bit of cinnamon and sumac. And then you roast them and then you layer the juicy pieces over some flatbreads with some caramelized uh, red onions and pour over the chicken juices. So the juices just seep into the bread and it's just such a wonderful sharing dish. Really aromatic, flavorsome. Ugh, yes. I could have some now. So good. And all the photography is beautiful, but I got to that recipe and that photo is just stunning and just made me so hungry the minute I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about cookbooks. Mm. So I, I pulled a couple of, well, I pulled yours and I also pulled Claudia Rodin off our shelf because I know you've mentioned her as a, an inspiration or someone who's influenced you. Are there other authors or particular books that have influenced you in the course of writing either of your books? Yeah, Claudia Rodin, without a doubt, was has been my biggest influence. In fact, her book of Jewish food, which isn't so well known in the States um, as, as uh, the book of Middle Eastern food, but it's such an incredible anthology of history and travel through the region. Um, and that was a big influence on me with the Saffron Tales, okay. because that kind of culinary anthropology that she did uh, was huge. I mean, definitely the work of Otolenghi and Sami Tamimi and their cookbooks, like the sure. flavors that they use are very similar to the flavors that I cook with. It's just that mine are slightly shorter in recipe length. <laughs> um, but they've been a definitely a big influence and I'm so happy that, you know, they are, have entered the food world in the last kind of 15 years because we're all the better for it. Right. And you noted there's a few books that you relied on heavily research-wise for Zaytun, including The Gaza Kitchen and Classic Palestinian Cookery. Can you talk a little bit about cookbooks that exist around Palestinian cooking other than yours and what sort of that landscape looks like? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. Both, um, I feel like that it feels quite exciting at the moment in this food area because it feels like there's a real movement of Palestinian women who are really at the forefront of celebrating their cuisine. So Jodi Kalla uh, has produced two books, Palestine on a Plate and Baladi. Um, and then Reem Cassis um, produced The Palestinian Table. And interestingly, both me, Jodi and Reem got our commissions at the same time in London. So I do think that okay. the Middle Eastern food boom in London is really the other thing that's helped all of these um, come out. Um, but I think that, not that I have favorites, but I do think the Gaza Kitchen is a particularly special book that, and that's by Leila El Haddad. And just because, you know, she went into Gaza in a very small uh, window of opportunity when the, when the borders were open and collected stories from people, really documented this very unique cuisine in the Middle East. Um, and there is so much for, I think, any, any person interested in, in Middle Eastern cooking to learn from it because the techniques, the ingredients are just so different. Yeah. And are you seeing more of a focus on Palestinian food writing and attention? I mean, we've talked with various guests around the increased focus, at least in the US, on Israeli food and on Persian food. Are we sort of on the cusp of that for Palestinian cooking as well? I hope so. Yeah. I mean, what I'd love to see is one day, hopefully not too long in the future, for us to be able to look at Middle Eastern food in the same way that we look at European food. Mm. So we would never say that we would never lump all of European food together because we know that Spanish food is different to French food, which is different to Italian food, and we'd celebrate all their differences. And the Middle East is the same. You know, yeah. there are so many nuances, even between this very small geographical region, different ingredients, different cooking styles. Um, it's a whole rich treasure trove that's just waiting to be explored. 
And again, in the UK, I feel that's already happening. So, you know, Iraqi food, Philip Juma has really kind of started to bring that up. And, you know, Syrian food is popping up. So, yeah, I think that it's, it's, it's a trend that's just started. So what's next for you? I noted, I noticed you alluded to another book coming and maybe you can't tell us too much about it, but. What are you working on now? Well, I really feel that I found my groove with this work, actually. I feel like it's bringing together all different bits of my personality that I've wanted to come together for so long, writing and food and travel and stories. Um, and so there is another book in the pipeline. It's a slightly more ambitious project. Um, and therefore it's going to take a little bit longer. And okay. I'm zooming out this time instead of zooming in, but it also continues this thread of mixing human rights and food and travel and good stories. So. Awesome. I look forward to speaking to you about it yes. in the future. Yes, for sure. So we always end with a little game. So I thought we'd play a game with this fun little deck of cards that oh. I got recently that we've been using a lot with various secret ingredients. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you have built a reputation for yourself as a person who really loves pomegranates. I do. <laughs> and there's actually a fun <laughs> story maybe we can share about how a pomegranate or an image of a pomegranate is actually what connected you and your photographer for Zaytun. Yeah, look, you know, I I, I feel like, a, you know, pomegranates have become so trendy in the last few years. Sure. But like, you know, when you're of Iranian descent, you you really have a connection to them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I was a little kid and living in Iran, my every, you know, my, my mom would go out to work in the morning and I would like <clears throat> grab onto her hands, uh, you know, begging her not to go to work, crying in the way that little toddlers do. And my mom would say to me, Yasmin, I need to go to work in order to earn some money so I can buy you pomegranates. And I'd practically <laughs> shove her out the door. And that, that's a true story that I opened the Saffron Tales with. But yeah, so I love pomegranates. And when I was, uh, you know, I, I put a shout out on social media looking for a, a Palestinian photographer to collaborate with for Zaytun. And um, in the end, you know, I had a Skype with Raya and we were just chatting about kind of, you know, our work and our influences. And then she just kind of like started kind of, you know, rubbing her leg and she's like, Oh, I just got this new tattoo and it's a bit itchy. And, um, she pulled up her, her, her leg and she had this stencil of half a pomegranate with its seized, seeds exposed and the leaves kind of, you know, winding around her calf. And I thought, that's the photographer for me. Yeah. Serendipitous for yeah. sure. So we've got these fun little secret ingredients. I shuffled them a little oh, bit. I'll give them okay. to you. Um, and maybe you can draw a few and then we'll play a little game to see if you can take that ingredient and pomegranate and other things if you'd like and tell us an amazing dish that you would make. I here. love it. How many shall I t- take? Let's do three. Three All right. sounds great. And I always try to come up with super fun names for these games, and I never can. So we're just going to call it like our fun pomegranate game. <laughs> so oh. what's the first one? Oh, no. Eel. Eel. Okay. Ah! <laughs> okay. Eel and pomegranate. What do we make? Um, I would slice the eel thinly. I would marinate it in some soy and pomegranate molasses. And then I would flash barbecue it. So get it really hot and smoky. So hopefully you'd have the the, the soy and the pomegranate molasses giving you this like salty, sweet, sour right. thing. Yeah. I love it. That sounds great. Okay. Number two. Ooh, rice cakes. Oh, interesting. Um... Okay, so I would um, get a rice cake and then I would get a spoonful of almond butter and I would mix um, a teaspoon of pomegranate molasses in it Okay, and I would mix them all together. And then I would potentially put a little bit of honey in there as well. Okay. And then I would spread that on top of the cake with a little sprinkle of sea salt. So you'd have this kind of nutty, sweet 
sharp, salty snack. Another delicious one. Okay, what's the final secret ingredient? This is hard. <laughs> I know you got a couple hard ones. <laughs> oh my god. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this properly, but it's gucha. Gauchuchang? Oh, Gauchuchang. Gauchuchang. I don't know if I'm pronouncing um, it correct, correctly either, but. A salty and savory fermented chili bean paste. Yes. Um, actually, that's pretty easy. I think with that, I would do a quick stir fry. Um, what could, what would be good with that? Like chicken or shrimp with some kind of bean sprouts and mange too. And, um, what I would do is, Again, when you're doing the stir fry, I would mix this with some sesame oil and some pomegranate molasses um, and probably some tamari for, again, a kind mm. of nice Asian kick. Delicious. Yeah. A little sweet, a little spicy. Yeah. I love that in all three you used pomegranate molasses, too. Oh, we I don't didn't get use, any. We, oh, I didn't which say is pomegranate. Fine, but, did, which yeah. is fine, uh, but we don't get any pomegranate seeds. Yeah. But pushing the pomegranate molasses, yeah. which is delicious. Well, awesome. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you. It's really lovely to speak to you. And we're headed now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hello, Brian. So we just sat down with Yasmin Khan to talk mm-hmm. about her latest book, Zaytun, and I'm hoping you have some things to share with us. Well, sure. I, I love Yasmin. She came to speak all about her first book, Saffron Tales, which right. is Persian food. And this book is all about Palestinian cooking. And it, that was a really interesting talk because, you know, we've talked so much lately about appropriation mm, and who yeah. takes whose food. And oftentimes we're talking about white chefs taking food from ethnic communities and um, building that up and doing their own thing with it. And people get up in arms about right. that. Well, this is very interesting because it's a Middle Eastern woman. She is from Iran to write about Palestinian cuisine, which is not her cuisine. Sure. Um, so it's re- it was interesting to think, oh, well, well, but that's, I guess that's okay. I don't know if that's okay. <laughs> no. Um, so it was very interesting to sort of consider. And she talked a lot about that being not from there, but traveling all through Palestine and discovering the people there and the flavors. And um, I think oftentimes that people who are not from a country actually do that food so much justice because they're so afraid of getting it wrong okay. that they do it very, very traditionally. I mean, if you look at Diana Kennedy, who's the right. doyenne of Mexican cooking, or Paula Wolfert, who yeah. wrote all about Moroccan food, they were so careful to get it right and to talk, you know, give uh, give respect to the food and to the people who were teaching them how to cook that food, that that ends up being a very traditional cookbook. Whereas the people who are oftentimes from those countries, like Murad Lalu, who owns um, Murad here in San Francisco, yes. and used to have Aziza, his book, Murad New Moroccan, has all these twists on Moroccan food because he's secure with his position. He's right. already from there. He doesn't need to prove that he knows how to cook Moroccan food the right way. So I think this is a really good example of that. Um, her Persian cookbook was traditional, but also had, you know, had her take on it. Right. Whereas this Palestinian, she really wanted to get exactly 
exactly right and do it justice. And right. I think she did. Yeah. And we've seen a number of new books on Palestinian cuisine in mm-hmm. the past couple of years. Reem yeah. Cassis had a great book. Are you seeing a number of focuses on Palestinian cuisine? Yes, but almost all of it is coming from the UK. Okay. Uh, it's interesting. I think a lot of the Middle Eastern uh, cookbooks in general, Middle Eastern and Indian, tend to come from England first. I right. think that because they've got so many immigrants from those places and we don't tend to. And sadly, we tend to less and less now that Trump is in office. So we don't get to see cookbooks from those places that originate in the United States. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Celia. You're welcome. My pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There, you'll find a recipe for Yasmin Khan's Moussakin, or roast chicken with sumac and red onions. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan Stewart, and our original theme song is created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Find more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Every weekday, I cover a bunch of stuff. Policies, social issues, news of the day, things you actually give a damn about. All right? But if you're listening to the podcast on the Facebook platform, I need you to make a switch. All right? Because that feature is going away on June 3rd. All right? June 3rd, that feature will go away. So I need you to jump on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast to make sure that I can still keep bringing you this indisputable content. All right, let's make it happen. Don't miss an episode of Indisputable. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.